Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. On today's episode, we offer part one of a discussion about the future of work with Valerie Garrett of Fifth Third Bank, Irvin Purvis of Jones Lang LaSalle for Procter & Gamble, and Dominic Iacobucci of BHDP. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural and interior design-related topics. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP. Let's get started. Valerie, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks for coming, by the way. Mm-hmm, sure. I am with Fifth Third Bank as Director of Workplace Design. Mm-hmm. So I'm responsible for um, the design of our entire real estate footprint. Um, all of our admin spaces, our branch spaces, and our wealth spaces. Thank you, Valerie. Irvin? Uh, yes, I'm a workplace uh, strategist slash architect slash designer. I cover the Americas for uh, P&G Real Estate, and I sit on P&G Global Design Board. And with that, uh, really try to monitor and uh, bring innovation and the next steps for uh, all of our built environment. Fantastic. And Dominic? I'm an architect, partner, and workplace strategist at BHDP Architecture, and I oversee uh, several of our key accounts. Thanks for that. Um, What brings us here today is I know that BHDP is working in cooperation with the University of Cincinnati um, to talk about the future of work and what that means. I'm going to ask Dominic for a little more content, but I think we're all in the room. I know that Irvin and Valerie, you were both able to critique some of the student work that's gone on so far, so you have input into what they've been talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So where did this, Dominic, where did this idea come from to partner with University of Cincinnati, first of all? So about five years ago, um, we've had several clients ask us, what's the workplace of the future? And as we started having that dialogue, we, we recognized that what they were asking us is, are there cubes, are there offices, how big are the cubes, what's the space look like? Um, But when we really delved into the question, the question wasn't really about space, it was about people. So as we took a step back, what we said is, the question that we want to answer is, what does work look like in the future? So what is the future of work? As we started to delve into that question, we realized that as an architecture firm, we have a bias towards space. And we can't really answer that question without leaning on everything that we've been taught and everything that we've practiced to date. So we decided the best place to go to really look at something of this nature is to go to a university. And we went to the University of Cincinnati, which is in our our city. Multiple of our our employees are alum from that university. And we said if we go to a university, we get research and we also get students. Students give us the ability to have an unbiased view towards the subject, as well as we're actually talking to the people that are the future workforce. So they are the future of work. Um, So it gives us an advantage that we wouldn't have had otherwise. We started multiple conversations with UC over the years, and we've done several classes. Uh, Some of them are just with design professionals. Some of them are with cross-functional classes that have engineers, organizational develop, sociology, psychology, business. This this studio that we actually did is an architectural studio. It was with fourth year, about to graduate with their bachelor's of science in architecture. And it was very much focused on understanding habits and behaviors, looking at how habits and behaviors influence trends and possibly 
uh, future caps, what happens in society, and then pull those back to a workplace design solution and say, okay, with those habits, behaviors, and trends, how would you design a future workplace to address that? So the class allowed us to look at the future of work as well as conceptual solutions on future workplace. That's good. Uh, now, uh, Valerie and Irvin, you both attended uh, the critique. At what stage were they in the process? Would that um, it was the first deliverable, or they were so, they? so Valerie and Irvin um, were part of a team of three external professionals that we brought in to be part of the full process. So they got to critique and see what happened with from the students in terms of looking at habits and behaviors, and those were work related. So. You know, how often do you look at emails? How do you approach coffee? How do you talk to people in the office? When do you come? When do you go? Those pieces and parts. They were also there for the trends, research, and the future casting, um, which I, I know we'll, we'll talk about in detail, Brian. Sure. And then the last piece was the actual design solutions that the students came up with. So they, they got an opportunity to see all the steps throughout the process, which was which was great. And their, and their role was to see it and uh, also critique it but mentor and give the students an opportunity to see outside perspective in real world. Very cool. Um, Valerie, from the tensions perspective, was there anything through that critique that stood out in your mind, good, bad, or indifferent? <laughs> yeah, there, there was. I mean, I, I love working with students because um, in my teaching experience, before I moved to Cincinnati, I taught senior level design students and they are very aspirational and they haven't learned yet what won't work, um, which is great because by the time they're out in their professional lives, maybe it will, right? So um, there's not really a reason to, to correct that entirely. Um, what I was very interested in and really surprised by was um, things that they have come to collectively believe. I wouldn't say necessarily in a groupthink way, but in a way that speaks to, I think, probably what they have been fed over and over from media um, outlets, which um, in the instance I'm thinking of in particular is around climate change. So a lot of the solutions were just very accepting and almost resigned to the fact that there's gonna be this major shift because of climate change and we just really can't do anything about it. So let's just figure out how to how to handle the, apoc the apocalypse when it happens. Right. And, um, you know, as, as somebody who's a couple decades into my career, that was a little discouraging to see that they all had just kind of resigned themselves to that. Um, so my encouragement to them was go back and do some reading, read things like um, biomimicry from Janine Benyus and then dig into what's happened 20 years since that was published because we're in uh, the 21st year now since that was published and we've actually solved a whole bunch of those things. Right. We've perennialized crops that we couldn't perennialize before. Um, we've figured out how to farm with biodiversity. We haven't yet figured out how to mechanize the harvest the way that we do in, in a monoculture but we're really far down the road in figuring those things out. And so we, we know how to fix it and we're just not doing it yet. And if they, in, in their youth and exuberance, are sort of just resigned to like, well, you know, it's gonna come to an end and we'll just have to figure out how to handle it, right. then we're all doomed, right? So um, th that was really surprising to me 
where they were with those kinds of things. That was one of the the things that permeated a lot of the discussions. So there's a like a 127 page work in progress of what they've been researching, and climate change came up often. But you're right; it seemed that the response was, "Here's what we do in a worst case scenario," mm -hmm. but there was nothing to lend to a preventative solution right. uh, ahead of time. So I I love that they understand that that they are stepping into a profession that has a huge impact on that. Right. Our buildings have a huge impact um, from a footprint perspective. Sure. So I love that they, they're, they're very sensitive to that, um, but there are solutions. Absolutely. So Irvin, what were your impressions of the student work? What did you, what stuck out? What stuck out? <clears throat> well, there's some, some things that didn't stick out and some that did. So oh. some, some of the kind of expected elements that I saw, you know, you see a little bit of this uh, uh, kind of expected pack or crowd mentality that certain ideas were probably limited by that, kind of people feeding off of each other and uh, taking cert certain things as absolute truths rather than pushing out outside of it. Um, you know, as expected, it was, it was refreshing to see, you know, clearly students lacking in experience they've made up for by you know this naiveness translates into non-biased approach which mm -hmm. is kind of nice to see so they had some fresh takes on certain things that you know whether they're right or not or accurate or not it's it's refreshing to see that um, but the biggest thing and, and I made this was one of my um, kind of a closing statements to them and even throughout the process I tried to push them in a way I, I didn't think they took it far enough you know in, in yeah. a certain way, you know, to, uh, to kind of add to what Valerie was saying about this, uh, certain absolute truths that they took to themselves, I thought they were very limiting, right? So they kind of found themselves in this uh, position that, hey, whatever this period is in the future, 10, 20, 100 years from now, we're, we're in this given environment and now we're responding to it. And I think it's a shame because as architects, you'd think that we were more of leaders and creating of that future scenario, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than taking us on a journey and saying like, hey, this is where we think the future is going, let us take and let's shape that and impact it to end to a, to come to a certain desirable future and where we want it to be, rather than, hey, we're presented with this and now we're resolving the pr same problems, you know, 100 years from now, right? Right. And, and I love the topic of the future. You know, we talk about this. It, it's unpredictable, right? And, and you know, you mentioned in the beginning the technology and we'll talk about it, but you know, the part of it, I mean, none of us can predict what it's gonna be, you know, so why not take the liberty and, and take these leaps of faith and say, let's let's work towards something outside the box. Sure. And the, un the unpredictable is happening now. Right. I mean, when you think about the statistic that every year between 1% and 1.5% of jobs are new, not a newly created nursing position, but a new position that nobody's ever heard of before. Didn't exist. A, right. Right, exactly, a role that didn't exist, um, that somebody now has to fill. And one to one and a half percent doesn't sound like a lot, but you aggregate that for um, the time period between freshman in high school and senior in college being eight years. Right. That's eight to 12% of jobs from the time that they're thinking about what they might do to the time that they're graduating. And so they're right in the midst of that. The unpredictable is happening right now. I thought that crossed my mind as I was reading the report because it, it struck me that um, the jobs of our parents' generations 
might not exist by the time we get to our grandchildren, and they'll be doing jobs that we never would have thought of in our own generation. Mm-hmm. You know? And even the jobs so, that do exist, I mean, I, I, I hail from Michigan, yeah. so one of the things that we say is like, hey, look, the days of going and working for 30 years at GM or Fisher Body or Ford or right. then retiring at 55 are pretty well over. I mean, even the jobs that do still exist that exist in some similar form to what they did 30 years ago are approached very differently. Very interesting. But yeah. I think it's interesting that you both kind of pointed on the same thing that I took away from the class at the macro level and then even at the micro level dealing with the students on a daily basis. So the piece of it really is is that all of the students are accepting a future that's told to them versus designing the future that they want. And if you look at at the stuff that they were doing, it – it was very much that to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Like it was the big ideas that we had heard and that we had seen and we were all expecting them to push it and take those 1% jobs and say, here's the 1% jobs that we think would be awesome versus, well, let's just see what trickles to the bottom. And we asked them to address one of these futurist ideas or one of these trends. We said that they could apply it to any project they wanted. We gave them all of this freedom and we gave them more freedom than they've ever been used to. Well, the reality was is because of that, they they spun for a while like they're like you mean i can do anything <laughs> yeah and and we tried to use the same idea brian where we said what are you passionate about like what are you interested in like what gets you so jazzed out of all the stuff that we've talked about it doesn't even have to be what you were researching it could be anything now now the interesting thing about this when it came to the end of the semester there was still a lot of them that cared about what the grade was yeah. did i get an a or did i not get an a <laughs> yeah and that approval piece is 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 huge now you know we can have this conversation about about school and education but you know i'd actually like to spin it and say you know in in our role and where we play as an architectural firm supporting multiple fortune 500 companies that is an issue in the corporate world as it is you ever had the experience of the meeting before the meeting before the meeting yeah or the one after the meeting or the meeting meeting i mean that's that's the i'm afraid to actually say this is what i believe and present it and say this is our recommendation and everyone's trying to set something up for approval from the person ahead of them and the person ahead of them and the person ahead of them and then if that person says oh i don't like your idea or i don't agree most people fold very quickly and they're like okay yeah you're the boss if you say that's what we should do versus if they believe in it they don't necessarily stand up for the beliefs and say you know what i hear you but here's all the other things that you don't understand and as much as you're saying this i really believe we should go this direction well the students are the students are the same example of that and if anything they're going to take that culture and they're just going to push it farther Mm -hmm. because right now they're not even willing to make decisions on their own work Mm -hmm. to even say this is what i recommend so the right response, in my mind, is some variation of, well, tell me more. Right. Right. If you don't like it. Inquiry. Then, then, then tell me why. Keep asking What are you responding yeah. to? Right. So, you know, to add to that, part of this is confidence, which you would expect students potentially to lack, right? That they're not, mm-hmm. they That's don't feel point. like the professionals right. yet in the field. Sure. Who am I to tell these professors and and veterans in the field you know how this is supposed to be so they are grasping for some kind of guideline Mm -hmm. right and and every now and then you'll see certain students push that a little bit more and really own it and say you know we'll challenge it and a lot of times you'll see them they're challenging something in a wrong way too but it's a good it's the exploration right Mm -hmm. so so the ownership of that and, and and leading through that i think explains it but the other part you know one 
we talked about it's the journey versus the, the, the destination. Right. And, and I remember having the struggle as a student. I remember being some specific cases when you feel, okay, maybe you've, you've nailed this design in the beginning, the outline of the building. And you're like, this looks good. You know, I'm, I'm maybe done. And professors pushing you really to, to, to explore it, to push it, to turn it upside down, inside out, and all of that stuff, right? So it really is telling you to push the envelope, and then the result will kind of come out of its own. And, and what I noticed a lot about these students, and if you remember in one of the sessions, it, it was such a conundrum to me, like why this, several of them had self-imposed restrictions, which made no sense, but what they did, and, and a good example for that is, one of them drew a room, an outline of a room, and not even a generic square or rectangle room. It was kind of a, a hexagon or octagon-shaped room. And then everything else was based on that shape. Even the desk that the people were sitting inside, it was uh. driven by this self-inflicted <laughs> restriction, right? It made no sense. And, and they, they were combating these inner demons of how to resolve this. And now I have this room, how do I deal with it? You know, and, and I couldn't, he, we're talking about a future workplace, make that room, whatever it is, yeah. eliminate Pick the walls. Pick up your eraser, darling. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That's how you deal with it. Blow out the walls. Don't even worry about it. Work from inner, you know. That, the, the, the shape of that room really should be driven by what's inside, right? How are we working in the future? And that's going to do that. And it was the other way around. There was a, um, I know we'll leap around here because that's how conversations go, but in the design output, I did see somebody that offered a solution that was a work pod that was completely sound isolated mm -hmm. that you could move. And if you needed to go work with somebody, you could go connect it to their pod and make a bigger pod for the two of you. And then it was supposed to have proximity sensors to let you know who was nearby to encourage you, you know, to interact with other people. And I thought, okay, one, how do you plug anything into that? But then I'm like, well, what an interesting concept because it bends the reality of what we know. If we tether everything to that plug, then things become more rigid because we talk about flexibility and adaptability. So I, I think they were following an interesting concept, but I, did you guys remember that from the presentation? Yeah, I remember mm -hmm. this one. What, what, was you, what, what was your takeaway from it since I wasn't in the room? What? I remember feedback to them about the restrictiveness of that. Right. And I love that you brought that up, Irvin, because I think that that translates really readily into who they become as professionals. Some of us are tend to be purists. Right. And so you right. get an idea and you think it's a good idea and you sort of really get married to that idea because <laughs> it was really good. And then you force it, right? You force and everything then, around Yes, it and to, then it becomes... To to that idea. Right. And, and like at what point do you just <clears throat> go, mm, that probably wasn't as good of an idea as I thought or an evolution would be better. And for some of us who, who tend to be purists, that's really hard. And so for our students who are still learning that, it, that to hold your ideas a little bit loosely because even the really good ones can benefit from an evolution, um, I think that's a good lesson. Well, and some of that's based off of the technology usage, right? Like when you use technology, it feels a little more permanent mm -hmm. and it's harder mm -hmm. to drop. Mm -hmm. Then when all of a sudden to your Valerie and you said, get an eraser. Well, they don't, they I mean, don't, they have, don't have, have an eraser. eraser. They don't even have a undo, pencil sometimes. Click, control undo. Z, control Z. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so it's interesting that you bring up technology because that seemed to be um, the thread that permeated all of the ideas, even with climate change, there were technological solutions. But one of the things, there was a title of one of the chapters called Compression, Techno uh, the Technology Impact on Human Work. 
And what they were saying is how work is evolving. Well, as we go to more coding, artificial intelligence, they're having a significant impact on the way people work today. You know, this idea of mass customization uh, within the workplace. But the environment is changing. And if I can go through the history of it, you know, it used to be that during the industrial age, work came to the city, right? Because that's where the factory was. And then as transportation evolved, suburbs started to grow, people moved away, and then they could work anywhere, and then there were suburban headquarters. But now, as technology and coding is compressing everything, it feels like a lot of work is moving back to the city. Well, well technology allows it to be anywhere. Right. But there is a, uh, I mean, people want to be in the city. They, they want to be, you know, one of the things that we talked about uh, toward the end was, you know, certainly the way that we live has evolved significantly, right? Technology has changed so much about how we live and what we do and how we do it. Mm -hmm. But there are things that have been consistent human needs for hundreds of years, thousands of years and, and beyond. Mm -hmm. Things like the need to connect. Right. The need to be a part of a community. The need for prospect and refuge. Um, those don't change and I think coming back into the city feeds a need or, or responds to a need to connect. I think that's part of what's driving it. And there's vibrancy when you have that density, you have this sort of human hum and you know, lots of vehicle hum and traffic and mm -hmm. honking also, but the, right. there's, a, there's vibrancy when you have a lot of people in a, in, a, in a compressed amount of space. And I think that's part of what's prompting that. But how interesting is that, you know, just two comments prior to that, one of them is, people are coming back to the city and, and the other one, well, technology allows you to work from anywhere. Those yeah. are two opposing mm -hmm. happening at the same time. Right. It almost seems like a little bit of a rebellion towards technology. I mean, we're so dependent on it. We use it all the time. I mean, but talk to any of us in a group, anybody you talk to, first thing we'll say, I would, I would love to, to unplug, but also leave your cell phone at home tomorrow when you go to work and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. You will go nuts and it's kind of this, double-edged sword you cannot let it go but this fact that the absolutely with technology you can work from anywhere and for a second it started happening people started working from home right yep and right. now everybody's trying to draw those people back in mm -hmm. and you know this idea that that people are coming back to the city i think it's absolutely right but it has i think little to do with technology and think about this i'm, I'm looking at these findings of this studio and the conversation and it's great i would love if somebody did this 10 20 30 years ago to see what those guys would, what students would predict or anybody, what would be happening today, right? Mm -hmm. And I bet we wouldn't predict that they were coming back to the cities and we cannot rehab enough of the old factories and production, old buildings to kind of inhabit. You would think we'd be building these brand new skyscrapers and technology savvy buildings, but we're actually gravitating towards the opposite, right? Right. I would agree with you. I mean, I think one of the one of the big things that came out of the class was trying to mesh technology with the world, just the built environment, mm -hmm. human interaction, society in general. Like, how do you fulfill that innate need to interact with other people? And can doing it over FaceTime really do that or not? Mm -hmm. Like, do you need to actually feel the person in the room as opposed to interact with the person across a device? And um, and 
if you look at a lot of the projects, no matter what they were, whether they were taking on technology or they were talking about hub and spoke and whether the companies are in cities or in their other places and they're big or if they're small, or if you look at um, some of the stuff with displacement or freelance working or um, even super blocks, autonomous cars, like they're all dealing with this tension that's occurring between technology and human need. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, some of my graduate work was around um, leading disparate global teams, and and how do you best do that? Because technology allows you to do that now, and 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 do it with some level of ease. And one of the conclusions that we came to was, you have to use technology to be able to see someone's face. Yeah. Because everything changes when I'm on a call with you and I can actually see your expression and how you're responding to me. I mean, even when we came into this room and, and decided, well, where are we going to sit? And I'll sit here and you sit there. And Irvin, you said, I'm going to sit here because I want to see your face yeah. when we're talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. um, there, there's something very different. I mean, you, you can laugh about it and say, well, it's a lot harder to be nasty when I can see the whites of your eyes. Ha ha ha. But the truth is, it's, not that hard for me, it's so on. much more dynamic, <laughs> good to know. It's much more dynamic when you can see how we're responding to each other and, right. and, and that, and you get some feedback. Yeah. One of the things about like texting is there's no sarcastic font, you know, that right. the idea is you don't know someone's intent when you can't see them and, and read their body language sometimes. So I, I just had to look this up. So I used my technology because I knew someone said this the He's other day to phone. me. Yeah. <laughs> um, only 7% of communication is verbal. The rest, 7%. 7%. The rest is nonverbal. 55% in body language and 38% in tone. Albert um, Moravian, so I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. So he's a, uh, he's a professor emeritus of psychology at UCLA. Oh. So he's the one that coined the research on those percentages. Mm. So when you take the fact that you have so much of communication that goes beyond just spoken word, um, I can say a sentence through text, but you don't really know what how I'm saying it, what my tone is. Am I being short even though it comes across short? Sure. Or am I just trying to be quick? Efficient. Yeah. Am I saying it in ha- oh yeah, for sure, happy? Or am I saying it in such a way that I absolutely like drive people crazy and I'm being mean and I'm mad at you. It's just, it's just not there. Well, and it's, it's interesting too, that so much of even what you hear as strange as it sounds is visual earlier in my career, I was part of a product development project called Babel and it was a voice scrambling software that you could connect to your phone so that when you picked up your phone, it scrambled your voice. Think about, Um, not unlike the way you hear in a restaurant, right? You hear a hum and you can hear that there are words being spoken, but they're all scrambled and jumbled together. And you can't necessarily pick out anybody's individual conversation unless that person has a very distinctive tone of their voice. And some of the research that came out of that is that a huge percentage of how your brain processes is actually reading lips. So somebody's talking to you and you're looking at them in their eyes, but you're also reading their lips and so they're you you just i'm not going to do it right now because of the microphone but you put a hand in front of the mouth and all of a sudden your brain has to work exponentially harder to interpret what you're hearing even though it's it's easily audible because it's only feet from you that's fascinating sound is an ever-present concern and worry in the workplace and the human voice is the most disruptive 
Thank you to Valerie for her magnificent input on how we process speech and the impact it can have. Thanks to you, the listener, for joining us at Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, for part one of The Future of Work. If you are interested in the Future of Work document created by the students at the University of Cincinnati in cooperation with BHDP, go to bhdp.com forward slash future of work. We hope you will join us again as we continue our constructive conversation on the next episode of Trends and Tensions. Again, if you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. 